It's a cliche by now to say that COVID-19 has upended our economy. Industries have ground to a halt and are only just beginning to start up again. Just this week, the UK plunged into a recession with the worst drop in GDP of any G7 nation. When we were talking about this a few months ago, I said that hard times were coming and today's figures show that hard times are here. When you look at something like the 2008 financial crisis, we were talking about economic growth shrinking over three months by about 2%. And this is 20%. It is the biggest recession that the UK has ever faced in terms of depth uh, since GDP was invented, basically. But what about outside the G7? How have the effects of COVID ricocheted around the global economy? Another sign, not just of how nations are at various stages in the pandemic, but how at odds governments are in their approach as the new normal takes on a different meaning around the world. Quite often it's the same country that has been particularly hit because there's no tourism or because it's a natural resource exporter and prices have fallen and at the same time has a heavy debt burden. These people quite literally live from hand to mouth. They pay their shelter at night with the money they make during the day and without the ability of going out and making money these people have no place to go. In the last few episodes of the Weekly Economics podcast, we've heard how COVID-19 has affected government spending, unemployment, and the hostile environment here in the UK. For this episode, we want to look farther afield at how the pandemic is affecting economies across the world, especially in the global south. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm super excited to be joined down the line by two fabulous guests. Firstly, Dr. Tobias Franz, lecturer in economics at SOAS. Hi, Tobias. Hey, uh, how are you doing, Aisha? Thanks for having me. I'm good. Thanks so much for joining us. Very, very excited. And secondly, we're also joined by Shreya Nanda, economist at the Centre for Economic Justice at the Institute for Public Policy Research. Hi, Shreya. Hi, thanks for having me on. Okay, so let's dive in because we've got a lot to get through and not that much time. So first of all, we often make the mistake of thinking that economies are really neatly contained into different countries. But as we know, and I think the listeners know that that isn't the case. So could we start with you, Shreya? Could you give us a kind of brief top level explainer as to what global capitalism is and how it connects different countries to each other? Um, yeah, so I'd probably lean more towards phrases like global economic system than global capitalism. And I'd say that that defines basically like who owns what, what trade is happening and what rules govern that trade. What is the financial system that's governing financial flows um, and who's paying what taxes? Okay, okay, that makes sense. Tobias, you have written that COVID-19, the moment that we're in, has exposed what you called, I think, the fragilities of global capitalism. What, what was it you meant by that? Yeah, so maybe just to come in also on this question of capitalism, uh, to give a bit of a context about what kind of fragilities have been exposed uh, through COVID-19. And one thing I think is crucial to understand about capitalism is that it cannot survive without constantly expanding. So we are told mostly by mainstream economists, of course, that a healthy expansion um, is around 3% compound growth rate annually. However, and given that it is impossible to live under a regime of exponential and endless capital accumulation, no matter what the social, ecological, or political consequences are, there are limits 
to the system. And this is where the main contradiction of capitalism is very much important to understand, because it is a system that has a chronic and inherent tendency to accumulate over and above of what it can reinvest profitably afterwards. And this over-accumulation leads to falling profits, slacken investments, and make crises as an inherent feature of uh, the capitalist system of accumulation. So this is where capitalism over and over again reaches these natural limits because it can no longer expand. Marx called these barriers to capitalist production. And they have to be constantly circumvented and transcended in quote-unquote innovative way. So the question is, and the history of capitalism has always been, how to get this surplus capital into new physical and social spaces that can absorb the surplus in a productive or profitable way. But this will inherently always reach a point where even in this new social or physical space in which surplus capital has been absorbed, will again reach limitations. And so this is why people like David Harvey refer to capitalism never solving its crisis tendencies, but rather moving them around geographically or deferring them temporarily. And so this is important, I think, in the context of COVID-19 as a crisis, where it's not so much a manifestation of these underlying contradiction of capitalism right now, because it is more of an external shock. But I would argue that it exposes more than any other previous crisis, these fragilities of global capitalism and of the system of capital accumulation. Yes, I want to dive into that in a second. But before we do, I just wanted to come back to you, Shreya, on that point that Tobias just laid out there, you know, very eloquently about these kind of inherent aporias of capitalism, or, you know, the, the idea that we're doomed for failure when we're living within a system that is pushing for infinite growth on a finite planet. And I just wanted to ask you how that intersects with the first point that you laid out about this idea of a kind of globally connected network of economic systems. How does that map onto that? So I think, um, yeah, if we think about it in, in terms of systems, there's two things. There's how are we dealing with this crisis now? Are we, are we cooperating or are we leaving everyone to fend for themselves? And then there's the context that I think Tobias was talking about, about this sort of injustice that's ongoing and has built up over many years. And that means that some countries and some people are starting this crisis in a much weaker position and are therefore much more vulnerable. That makes sense. So Tobias, let's talk about these fragilities then. You kind of laid out there what that might look like, but could you offer yeah, a bit more colour on what that's looked like? Yeah, um, I'll try. So of course, this geographical expansion that capitalism constantly needs to do, which is of course backed by political, military and geopolitical activities of the most powerful multinational enterprises in the world and nation states, of course, engaging in imperialist, colonial, neo-colonial exploitation. But this is basically how capitalism from a more U.S. European-centered system became a truly global phenomenon through these different historical ways of expanding into the global south. And arguably the most decisive political project that expanded capitalism into the global south and sort of recuperated and concentrated economic power with the capitalist class again was the neoliberal turn of the 1970s and 80s. So... This, of course, uh, is a political project, if you will, that due to the debt peonage under which a lot of the Global South countries have been forced onto these countries, a lot of the uh, austerity measures that are also now uh, very famous in the Global North, but they have been 
implemented in global South countries since the 1980s, and specifically Latin America as a neoliberal laboratory, if you will. And so the COVID-19 crisis exposed several things. So first, that austerity measures forced upon the countries of the global South have been entirely politically motivated and never have been an economic necessity. Second, I think the effects of these austerity measures, be it cuts to social services, healthcare systems, or state-owned enterprises, are now the cause of serious health and social problems as privatized and cutbacks health services and social services are completely overwhelmed. Also, the flexibilization of the labor market, which is part of the neoliberal paradigm, now has detrimental effects on the racialized and gendered workforce of the global south that is not only exposed to higher risk of being unemployed in this current crisis, but also have to continuously go out and search for work, for informal work, and be exposed to the virus. But of course, as well, more macroeconomically speaking, trade liberalization reforms and subsequent concentration on the comparative advantage on cheap labor and cheap commodities have left these countries in the global south largely with a lack of diversification. And now we have several problems arising with supply bottlenecks of consumer goods and non-consumer goods because of their economies being focused on cheap labor and cheap commodities rather than actually producing things themselves. And uh, last but not least, the financialization of their economies, which you know resulted from opening their capital accounts, which is also part and parcel of neoliberal reforms, has now, after years and years of inflow of foreign capital into these markets to look for new geographical frontiers, if you will, as part of capitalist uh, expansion, are now reversing, and we have massive capital outflow, currency devaluations, and problems of governments to finance their economies, and of course, problems for businesses and households also to access uh, liquidity in the time of need right now. Okay, brilliant. That makes sense. And there's certainly some parallels, at least in the first few points you're making, between some of the issues that COVID's throwing up in the global south and Latin America and, and also here, some of which we've obviously discussed on the podcast. So now that we've set the scene, let's talk a little bit more about how the pandemic has affected countries in the global south. But firstly, Shreya, I wanted to ask to you, do you think it even makes sense to generalise about global south countries in this way? Do they share certain economic characteristics that make that useful uh, or not? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are certainly patterns and it, it certainly makes sense to talk about sort of the losers and the winners from our economic system, even if we're, you know, we're not saying everyone in is, is in exactly the same position. And then particularly now with the coronavirus context, obviously, some industries in some areas have been hit particularly hard. And there is a correlation between that and sort of poverty and economic prosperity, uh, although not obviously not an exact correlation. So I've heard that global production is at a standstill. Again, for you, Shreya, what does that mean and how will that affect countries in the global south? So effectively, what we're seeing with this crisis is um, certain industries have been particularly hard hit, like, for example, tourism. And then that effectively creates winners and losers. So, yes, yeah, so some people have been particularly hard hit. And then, you know, if you had a sort of a functioning international cooperative system, you'd say, OK, well, let's you know, give some support to those people who've been harder hit from the people who haven't been so much harder hit. But because we don't have that, then we're seeing people effectively being left to fend for themselves, countries having to go into massive debts, which they can't pay back just to 
basically stay afloat. So yeah, it's not a system that's set up to maximise the good for everyone. And there's this kind of liberal assumption that that will just happen automatically. But to me, that just doesn't make sense. Mm. And in some of the countries that you're referencing, how does it connect with what uh, Tobias was just saying about austerity? What's government spending looking like there? Has that changed in these countries during this time? Or are they kind of still pursuing more of an austerity response? Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with Tobias's point about the sort of forcing on to countries of austerity policies, neoliberal policies that have essentially stopped countries from pursuing successful development paths, which would have allowed them to enter this crisis into a stronger position. So countries are effectively now in a very difficult position where they suddenly don't have the means to support themselves. And then what you have is effectively them having to turn to these predatory loan situations where they're having to take on debts that they can never pay back and will, you know, have this long lasting effect on their economies. And lastly on that then, how do you think that that's going to impact migration? I mean, obviously, this is something that's really in the news in the days surrounding this podcast recording. But yeah, I mean, do you think that we're going to see large scale displacement as a result of uh, COVID-19 from the global south to the global north? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of inevitable, isn't it? When you have areas which are no longer economically viable. And yeah, it just it always seems to be to be completely missing from our debate on the migrant crisis is what role has the UK played and is the UK currently playing in how like other countries are doing economically like if we're stopping them from developing then how can we then say oh it's not our problem like it's the wiring problem Mm. okay so I want to come back to you Tobias it's a big question and I'm not expecting you to be able to (laughs) surmise it neatly but how do you think the history of colonialism fits into all of this that we're talking about, you know, um, are the colonial relationships that we know that they're not over, we know neocolonialism is alive and kicking, but I guess what would you say the relationship is between specifically the kind of cultural, international, historical legacy of colonialism, of British colonialism, let's say, what's the relationship between that and some of the hardships that the global South countries are facing during COVID-19, in a nutshell? Yeah, that is one task, Aisha. But basically, what we've seen uh, through colonialism, but also nowadays, specifically looking at Latin America, which, you know, used to be the El Dorado paradise for colonizers in search for gold, Latin American countries, but also other countries in the global south are still the backyard for cheap labor, for capital to tap into, but also for cheap commodities and cheap uh, natural resources such as copper, nickel, coal, and oil. That refers to what Treya was saying about global production, uh, you know, falling down now with the COVID shock and having serious repercussion on the economies that focus on these natural resources. So the legacy, of course, and that is uh, very much supported by the domestic capitalists and oligarchs in these countries, is that these economies very much still depend on commodity exports, and what Treya was also saying on international tourism that is largely related to cheap labor, cheap workforce uh, needed for services that are within the international tourism industry. So um, I would say these two aspects are crucial to understand sort of the legacy of colonialism to this day, their role within global capitalism. And as I said before, now with the drop of production and the drop in demand for these commodities, and of course, the end to international travel, it is these undiversified economies are now 
the ones that are worst affected. And I think it still is very relevant to talk about center and periphery or dependency to this extent, even though transnational capitalism uh, has integrated some of the local or domestic capitalist classes within the sort of winners of, uh, of global capitalism. And could you just quickly add to that, Tobias, how you think that the measures that were taken after the 2008 financial crisis kind of laid the groundwork for some of the economic troubles being faced by the global south because of COVID today? Yeah, that is, of course, also very crucial. And here, the rise of state capitalism, I think, is very important to discuss, both from China as well as from Anglo-Saxon and European countries. So with the global financial crisis, what you had is basically a complete crisis where there was no longer any surplus liquidity that could be expanded or that could be invested into new frontiers to what I referred to earlier. So what happened from governments in the UK, Europe, the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve is that they rolled out quantitative easing programs to sort of flood the market with cheap liquidity. But what happened instead of that liquidity being used in the global north markets to regenerate economic growth in the real sector, what happened is that through different financial instruments, they were leveraged and often ended up on the balance sheets of uh, corporations in the global south. For example, in Latin America, non-financial corporate debt grew from around $76 billion in 2009 to almost 250 billion in 2014 and reached over 300 billion in the first quarter of 2019 which makes also the region the largest debtor of US dollar denominated debt in the world so this flooded markets in the global south with cheap capital which led to currency appreciations and to fluctuations in their currencies that far outweighed the positive effects let's say of access to liquidity for governments and businesses there. So this is an important factor to understand how uh, quantitative easing programs increased this debt peonage uh, of countries and corporations in the global south. And to another extent, China as an important player in the international financial markets, but also the demand for commodities that China basically pulled out the entire global economy after the 2007-2009 crises is largely responsible as well for an increased demand in in commodities um, leading to a commodity price boom. So we had between 2000 and 2015, more or less coupled massive inflow of foreign currency with appreciation effect and crowding out domestic investments, et cetera, et cetera. But also we have a massive demand for commodities from China. And these two factors are important to understand how Markets were basically overbloating both asset-based markets in terms of the financial markets, as well as the commodity-based, which are also very much financialized, were all overvalued by a large extent. And then with the shock happening, this reversed dramatically, leaving many of these countries in very, very parlous situations with currency devaluating, debt exploding overnight because of the appreciation of the U.S. dollar because a lot of the funds taken out from the global south went into the U.S. dollar and so on and so forth. So there's all these ripple effects that happened due to the groundworks laid by quantitative easing. Mm, okay, okay. For you, Shreya, kind of, I guess, same question as the previous one um, about the history of colonialism and how you've seen it, I guess, manifest today in, in your work looking at the global south and how they're responding to the current economic crisis. 
So I think one thing is um, the point I already mentioned that because of this history of injustice, like countries have now ended up entering this crisis in a weaker position, a more vulnerable position. But secondly, there's, I think the history of colonialism is like a clear example of where, you know, countries essentially use violence and military force to get control of resources, strengthen themselves economically. But I think you can still see some of that today because obviously we have quite weak institutions and laws at the international level. We don't have anything like a democracy. so. It's like the rule of the jungle, like it's what you'd expect to see, I think, still going on today, where countries which are stronger militarily can use that to their own economic advantage at the detriment of others. Mm. And do you think that will play out in the follow on from or the fallout from COVID, I guess, when we're talking about dissemination of vaccines, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, completely. I think it's, it's an endemic problem in terms of currency, in terms of trade, in terms of finance, in terms of, as you say, vaccine distribution. It all goes back to this question of who has the strength to challenge these policies and who just has to be treated how they will be treated. Okay, so Tobias, you've you've mentioned that you specialise in Latin American economics, and I want to dig in there a little bit. Could you tell us broadly um, what the Latin American economy was like before the pandemic hit? Yes, I mean, there I think it is helpful to differentiate between the different kind of Latin American economies. So there's the commodity exporters, which are eight different countries, Ecuador, Colombia, Brazil, Bolivia, Mexico, Chile, and Venezuela, and Peru, and more of the Caribbean that are tourist-based in their economic organization. So they have about 80% of their GDP you know, focused or made from tourist sectors. So this is more the economic setup. Um, we had, as I, as I mentioned before, a massive explosion of private debt, both households as well as corporations that were in very perilous debt situations and economic growth rates that weren't anywhere close to uh, this 3% magical compound growth number that we're told to be a benchmark. So they were already entering before the pandemic in a situation that was by no means an easy one, especially thinking about the OPEC-Russia commodity or oil price war that happened just before the pandemic hit. And you mentioned already earlier that Latin America was in some ways a kind of laboratory or testing ground for early neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s. Would you say that that is kind of the motivating factor for the region being the slowest growing economic region in the global south heading into this pandemic? I would think so, yeah. So this is important for the last three decades, basically, since neoliberal reforms. It has been the slowest growing region of the global economy. And I would argue that this is due to the fact that these economies aren't very diversified, which I think is a legacy of the way in which colonial powers have structured both of their racialized and gendered workforce, but also their economies, as I said before, focusing on cheap commodities and cheap labor. And also importantly, all of the estimates now coming out um, in terms of the recovery or the worst affected regions here as well, Latin America and Caribbean is by far the most affected region economically with contractions on average of over 7%. And so what do you foresee? I mean, obviously, it's really difficult to predict, but for the people living in the region, are there safety nets for them to fall back on if, you know, they lose income, et cetera, et cetera? What's the kind of, I guess, welfare state like? I know it will obviously differ from country to country, but broadly, what what do you predict will be the impact of all this? Well, as part of these states and completely through and through being neoliberalized to such an extent, we also have the highest percentage of informal labor and when, when you compare regions. 
Um, and so here, there's no social safety nets there to fall back on for these informal workers. Healthcare systems are largely privatized. Supply bottlenecks and food and medicine are arising due to the fact that they're not producing any non-consumer goods and consumer goods even. And so there are long-lasting implications already of the neoliberalization, and I think it will even be worse coming out of this crisis. Okay, so let's talk about some of the solutions, uh, potentially. So Shreya, I want to come back to you and ask the question, globally, what do you think other countries, especially those in the global north, like the UK, should be doing to support global south economies in the wake of COVID-19? There's kind of two approaches. There's one which is like, what are we doing now that's actively harmful? So things like um, Western companies monopolising natural resources in global south countries and extracting rents extracting rents by the financial sector, rich countries writing the rules of trade and so on to favour themselves, shielding tax avoidance and money laundering, all that stuff. Can we stop doing that? And then there's a level beyond that, which is like, we're all interconnected. You know, free trade creates winners and losers. So can we try and do something to recognise that, have some redistribution between countries? Can we help each other out and say, some people have been hit more by this crisis. Can we try and smooth that? But I think that we need a lot stronger institutions to be able to do that second one. Okay. And and do you think that there's a role for lifting economic sanctions or a debt jubilee and things like that? Is, is that something you've looked at in your work? Yeah, I think that's part of it. If you recognise this historically and currently, the way that richer countries are contributing to these problems, then of course, like it makes sense to say, let's forgive some of that debt. Let's stop imposing these sanctions. And Tobias, it's kind of same question, you know, what should we be doing here? But also as a specialist in Latin America, what do you think governments should be doing there to rewire their economies um, post-COVID? Yeah, just to tap into what Shreya was saying about this rentier economy. Uh, When you think about it, it's crazy to live in the system where the surplus capital that is being generated is flowing further into the pockets of the 1% of asset holders because of the financialization of global capitalism, blowing up asset bubbles and flowing into the pockets of the 1% rather than into production, which you know has, of course, detrimental effects on workers um, as it further removes their labor from the dynamics of capitalism and thereby also their wages. So just to emphasize this point, it is crazy, this rentier economy uh, in which we find ourselves in. Yeah, no, I just had a question on that specifically, Tobias, and it was just because even you saying that, you know, I've been reading about this today, actually, one of the things I was wondering is, will the absurdity of that and the kind of, you know, um, craziness, as you just mentioned, of this rentier economy be, I guess, to some extent exposed by COVID-19? Are you optimistic that it might push us into a kind of global recognition of the absurdity of that? Or do you think that actually capital will just grow another head to respond to that and subsume the challenge? I mean, coming from a heterodox economics discipline, I hope that now mainstream economists will understand that their tools and theories are actually worthless to explain anything. But uh, to come to your point, I think there is a recognition within the general public for sure about, you know, austerity being largely politically motivated and the way in which, quote unquote, low skill work is now, uh, quote unquote, essential work. But it seems like, even though first government responses were sort of half-baked Keynesian, if you will, that most of the countries in the global north as well as the global south are again locked into this idea of 
financial sector bailouts and the new rounds of quantitative easing programs that will, again, you know, defer the crisis tendencies because it will end up in a larger debt of corporations later down the line and will then lead to the next systemic crisis. So while I think in the general population, both in Britain as well as in countries of the global south, there is a recognition about the clear, clear failures that the system is constantly providing, I do think that most of the policy responses that we're going to see will again uh, have similar traits than after the 2007-2009 global financial crisis. But again, I think also crises are moments or catholic moments where capitalism actually changes and comes out differently and every crisis has been that way. So I think there is also some hope and I'm happy also to talk more about that hope and that it isn't all doomed. Yeah, let's end on the hope because that's usually good. Treya, I just wanted to come to you before we end on that question, I guess, about solutions and where we should be going next. And and particularly, it seems like in at least UK progressive circles, conversations about COVID-19 and the economics of it are largely limited to countries in the global north, Europe, the US, Australia, New Zealand. And I just wanted to ask why you think it is that UK progressives don't seem to be able to really consider the economic impacts of COVID on countries further afield and, and how we might change that. That's a really interesting question. I was going to add to Tobias's answer to the last question, but I think it links, which is about the impact of crises on the political situation in the global north and how, like, if you look at the 2008 financial crisis, obviously there's been this turn to be like, you know, we have to look after ourselves and we can't afford to help others now that we're doing worse. But there's also been this huge explosion in like left wing ideas and, you know, more recognition that the system isn't working and potentially more appetite for change so that's yeah a case of optimism but I think in terms of what your question about progressives concentrating on the global north like perhaps it comes down to this political question of being like well we need to win these battles in our own countries first and this worry that people aren't sympathetic to saying let's think outside of ourselves but I think there is this huge opportunity here to talk about how this system is potentially unfair and how changing it can benefit people within the global north as well as within the global south and like building a coalition of interests so i'm also optimistic oh great this is a good way to end so tobias you said you had something hopeful for us what have you got <laughs> no i mean just on that point as well what Trey was saying and maybe also something that you know we hear over and over again we hope we can go back to normal and all of that even if it returns to normal normal is what got us into this Normal was an economy ever more prone to major economic crisis, to inequality, and never prepared to deal with them. So I think we need to really, really dig deep, both politically as well as intellectually, academically, and grapple all the ways how this normal failed us, and both going and uprooting all of the uh, colonial, imperial, and neocolonial forces that have forced the system of accumulation onto the globe. All of these things are part and partial of this questioning of the normal, if you will. And I think it's crucial for us, as Treya was saying, to be part of, in any way we can, grassroots local organizations to attempt to redefine governmental powers, which are alternative to the existing structures, and yeah, be it through municipal governments, grassroots movement organizations, and to support the capacity of people 
to organize themselves into structures of collective governance. And this is, I think, very much important to make the social good a priority again, rather than capital. And theoretically, conceptually, ideologically, and if you will, policy-wise, move away from this idea of human beings being individualists that has everybody fending for themselves. So I think that is necessary and possible to do, I think. It's pretty hopeful. I feel hopeful. That is all we've got time for, which is very sad because I could speak to you both for the rest of the evening. But it, I, I'm genuine in saying that I think it's a a kind of uplifting thought that something which is obviously so catastrophic around the world, one of the more positive outcomes could be, as you say, this kind of unification, this recognition of actually the kind of parallels in the way that we've all been impacted by the global economic system to this point and the benefits of moving away from it in a shared direction. Okay, we're going to have to wrap up. I'm very sorry, lovely listener. I'm sure you're just as uh, engaged as I am. But Tobias Franz, Dr. Tobias Franz, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? They can go and look at the SOAS, Department of Economics page. We're also doing quite a lot of research right now on global capitalism and uh, global south development. And I tweet at Tobias Franz 1804. Awesome. And Shreyananda, same question. Thanks so much to you for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Um, You can find my work on IPPR's website and also follow me on Twitter at ShreyaGNanda. Awesome. Hopefully we'll have you both back for a future episode where we're talking about all the amazing solutions that the uh, countries that we've mentioned are putting in place um, in the wake of COVID. That is it for today's Weekly Economics podcast. And that's it for this series. Sob. We'll be back with you soon for more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at NEF on Twitter. The Weekly Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.